You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. stuff can wait a little bit, but I plan on being back next week. we got some things coming. I'm going to be um, giving some book reviews and such, some books I've read, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about War Room. I actually went to see that with my wife and her parents, and to tell you how the basic assessment, we enjoyed it. I honestly thought it was one of the better Christian movies I've seen in a while, and I was especially thinking when I left that there was no scene where I remember where they pretty much shoved a cross in your face and said, hey, we need to tell you explicitly what the gospel is. I mean, I'm not opposed to the gospel, of course, but too often it seems like Christian movies think they have to teach down to us and spell everything out explicitly so or else we'll miss it. And I didn't really see a lot of that in this one, so I'm going to be writing a review of that. But today, we're going to be talking about relational apologetics. And my guest for that is uh, Michael Sherrard. He's the director of a Vasio Christi College Preparation Preaching Pastor at Cross Point Community Church in Peachtree City, Georgia. And he's the author of his book, which is about defending the Christian faith with holiness, respect, and truth. He's an, also an indie electronic musician who has released two albums down <laughs> called Down the Darkness and What Comes First. And I'll go ahead and say I have no idea what that means really about uh, my wife plays the bass, that's complicated enough for me. And uh, he has a BA in religion, a Master's of Divinity with a concentration of apologetics from Lutheran Rice Seminary. And he's a PhD candidate at Radboe University in Nimjin under the renowned New Testament scholar Professor Wonderful. And that, that's a pretty good name. I, I think my father-in-law did some work with him or under him as well. So, uh, Michael, yeah. welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Nick, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Appreciate your work and uh, looking forward to spending a couple hours with you and uh, just talking about whatever uh, uh, makes us happy, I suppose. It's too bad I didn't realize you were down in Atlanta. We could have been doing something this past week. I'm sure hey, my, what? I would have enjoyed it. I would have gladly let you babysit some of our kids. We just had... Uh, baby number five comes, so I would have suckered you in and said, hey, yeah, Nick, come on down, let's let's talk, and then I, me and my wife would have uh, left you with five little kids, and uh, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have done something pretty dirty for you, on you like that. Uh-huh, okay, I'll keep that in mind. I was about to suggest something for over <laughs> Thanksgiving break when I'll be down there again, but maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, next time you're in the area, we'll, we'll definitely make, a, make it a point to get together. 
Yeah, we're, when we're down there again, we're thinking of doing things like uh, ETS, EPS, and SBL together, because they're all meeting this year in Atlanta, so... Yeah, no, that's... That, I, I'm grateful for that. Uh, no travel for me, so that'll be good. Yeah, and if you're into that scholarly stuff, listening up there, and you want to see me sometime, well, let me know. We'll try and meet up there. But, uh, Michael, some people might not know who you are too much, so uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, how you got to be doing what you're doing, things like that. Yeah, there's a, there's a long story like a lot of people have, I'm sure, um, but I grew up in an amazing family. There's literally not a time in my life that I don't remember being a believer in Jesus Christ and following him. I never really had a rebellious period in my life. That's obviously not to say that I have been uh, a perfect person my, my whole life, but I had uh, fantastic parents have fantastic parents that loved the Lord, faithfully taught me and my brother and my sister the ways of Jesus. Uh, I grew up playing uh, sports. I was an athlete. I was a baseball player, and, and I thought that um, that's where my life was headed. Um, but somewhere in high school, I started to feel the Lord directing me differently into vocational ministry. Uh, it wasn't the easiest of things to just let baseball go. Um, and I think the Lord helped me out by rupturing a disc in my back. Mm. And I had a uh, back surgery. The grace of God at work, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it truly, though, is one of the greatest blessings uh, in my life. Uh, the result from back surgery is just a drastic change in direction. Yeah. I ended up going to a small school in uh, Gordon, uh, in Barnesville, Georgia. Uh, about its only claim to fame is that John Piper's wife is from there. And uh, there's a little school called Gordon College that I went and played baseball after I had my recovery from surgery. And uh, But it was there that I met my wife, met the dearest friends that I have to this day, uh, actually learned to play the guitar, was in a band traveling for several years. Uh, and it's also where my educational pursuits began to shift uh, into apologetics and religion and now ultimately New Testament scholarship. And it was that. It was the, the back surgery was the... Uh, the start of a series of events that have led me to where I am now. And so I'm very grateful for it. And um, so, yeah, I got a BA in religion at Luther Rice um, and an MDiv with a concentration in apologetics. Uh, and I didn't plan on pursuing apologetics when I went to school, but I had a class with Richard Howe. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Howe was, was there for just a very short period of time, and I had an ethics class with him. And it just, it bit me. It got me. Yeah. And I wasn't drawn to apologetics like a lot of people are drawn to apologetics because they had like a crisis of faith or anything like that or they were yeah. wrestling with doubts. But when I look at culture and when I see what is happening just across the board, what I see with, what is happening in public universities, it just makes me angry that lies and folly are robbing people of true life. And so apologetics, to me, is, is a way to be effective in communication uh, and showing what is true to a culture that is falling hook, line, and sinker for lies. And so that's really what drew me to apologetics was, mm -hmm. was kind of an anger, a sense of justice for uh, combating what is not true out in culture. So really enjoyed my time at Luther Rice and uh, now doing some Ph.D. work under Jan van der Waal. And you're right, that's who uh, your father-in-law, Mike, he studied under him. And I'm very grateful to Mike Lacona. He's the one that introduced me to Jan, was the one that, that really paved the way for me to uh, to work with him. And it's been fantastic. And so I'm, I'm, my work is 
Uh, I'm researching things in the field of New Testament ethics mm-hmm. right now. Really mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Really excited about it. Um, so I'm also a pastor. Uh, that's where I'm at right now. I'm in my office at my church, Cross Point Community Church. Uh, a great uh, body of believers here. It's one of the things that I love best about Cross Point is just the family atmosphere. I have more true friendships here at Cross Point that I've had probably any other church that I've ever been at in my life. Um, and so it's great. It's a joy. I love pastoring. And the last thing, I got a, I got a list here, don't I? Uh, yeah. I am the director of Ratio Christi College Prep. And also a brief introduction for that is it's a national movement that trains high school students in apologetics and evangelism and worldview. One, to help them right now withstand the attack that exists on their faith. But this young generation is a passionate generation. They're ready to go change the world. They're ready to share the gospel. They're ready to be involved in social activism, just kind of loving your neighbor and seeking their good in society. And so we want to train them, and we want to equip them to be effective in dialogue and just know how Christianity matters in public, that it's not just a private belief you have. You have a true belief that is good in culture. Here's how you can be effective with that. And so that's that's my department at Ratio Christi, and uh, enough of enough of that for now, I suppose. And you feel free to ask as many questions as you like, but uh, I've got a, a full plate right now that could take up the whole two hours if we just were to talk about it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and some people might not know this about me, but you and I have something in common. We both had back surgery around our high school years and such. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think mine was probably a little bit more painful, though. I had scoliosis surgery when I was in high school. So I tell my wife, she has married the man of steel right here. (laughs) I've got it with me constantly. That that makes Yeah, well, if if anybody that's had back problems uh, can be sympathetic with someone else. So uh, I I, I can feel your past pain, my friend. Yeah, and it, it makes it really interesting when we're out walking somewhere together. If there was a lightning storm, she will take my hand immediately because she knows if any one of us is more prone to be struck by lightning, it's me. <laughs> and she says, if you're going to be struck, I'm going to take it with you, and if we, if we go, we go together. We go together. Oh, that's a loyal wife. That's pretty uh-huh. good. She is very loyal. Now, when we're talking about your book, Relational Apologetics, I kind of think it's kind of like Greg Kokar's Tactics. If you want to go to a bookstore, for instance, and find a book and say, I want to be convinced that Christianity is true and Jesus rose from the dead, your book isn't for one to pick up. Right. But if you want to find out how to do apologetics in the field and how to interact with unbelievers and such, your book is for one to pick up. Yeah, and it's definitely in the category of uh, methodology or an approach to apologetics. Uh, apologetics is booming right now. I mean, it is, it is. The, the age of the apologist. There are just uh, excellent resources out there. The, the problem today is not knowledge. It's not the ability to go find a good answer. If anything, there's a there's a lack of understanding of, okay, now that I have amassed all of this knowledge, how do I use it effectively? How do I use it effectively in public dialogue? How do I use it effectively in my relationships? How do I use it effectively in my office with my coworkers? How do I use it effectively in evangelism? And so relational apologetics uh, fits into that niche. It's to uh, help the believer know how to use the knowledge that they have more than it is, as you had said, 
uh, classic apologetics book that will convince and persuade somebody of God's existence or the resurrection or, or anything like that. Yeah, now, let's uh, see where you start out here. It's uh, with holiness. And I can't but think that when I was engaged to Ali, and I was preparing myself to be your husband, I, I'm sure I'll be the only man out there who's like this, but I was looking at myself and finding a whole lot of things that I did not like in preparation <laughs> about myself. And I'm sure that's a totally unique experience to me there. And I, it, it never really happens to anyone else, even in marriage. Uh, I remember talking to my friends who were, and for the most part, still are single and saying, saying to them, here's my advice you, if you ever plan on getting married someday. Work on being holy right now. Because, mm. like, all right, that, that reality of preparing for marriage opened my eyes up big time to holiness. And I tell Man, people, go ahead. Oh, no, Nick, that's, that's just a great, a great point. Uh, you know, our culture thinks that the way you prepare for marriage is by dating, but the best way to prepare for marriage is to refine your character mm-hmm. to allow the Lord to sanctify you and to conform you into the image of Christ and that is much better preparation for marriage than you know hitting the dating field so that's a uh, I agree with that statement uh, 100% and if you know about our relationship we didn't date too long at all well I tell people when they ask about how we came together I said, well uh, I found about her in August and she was living in Atlanta at the time where I lived in Charlotte we started dating in September. We met in October. I proposed in December. We got married in July. Hey, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. And what what I've learned about marriage is something that someone once said before that when you get married, in many ways, it's like God holds up a great big mirror right in front of you and says, Hey, bozo, this is what you're like. Got it? Cause, well, I think every uh, married man has experienced that. We know you're speaking yeah. the truth. Yep, because you look and you say, like, all right, here's how I'm living, and so many times when I'm tempted to get angry with her about something she's doing, I say, how can she, how can, and then, wait, 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 here's one area I do the exact same thing in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I start the book, Relational Apologetics, yeah. with holiness, because I just think it's foundational, yeah. uh, really, for all the Christian life, that it's very easy to become distracted with the things that we are to do and engage in and forget the types of people that we are that undergird it. And I think that the platform for our knowledge is a holy lifestyle, that the greatest lesson perhaps the church needs in apologetics is simply holiness. You know, maybe one of the problems when we talk about holiness is that we uh, think of like, like some monk sitting in a monastery doing absolutely nothing but pouring over a Bible and praying hours and hours every day like you know that's that's really not me is that what holiness is all about no right no holiness isn't that and there's really you know when when i use the word holiness uh, i think there's kind of two ways that we can use it we can use it as in a positional sense and in that sense all true followers of jesus christ are holy that we have been Redeemed, we have been purchased by the blood of Christ, and we are a holy and consecrated people under unto Him. 
Uh, but there's also another kind of level of holiness or a way to use the word rather, and it relates to our conduct, that we are people that are committed to practicing righteousness. That obviously doesn't mean that we are perfect in all of our conduct, though that is our aim. We are to seek a moral perfection in all things, such as our Lord was morally perfect. And obviously that is not something that we will be able to achieve. That is our goal nonetheless. So when we think about holiness, what we simply uh, are looking at is striving to follow Jesus' instructions faithfully, that we are to live uh, just we are lit to live moral lives unto God. And the church right now is just being killed. Uh, it's being torn apart by sin and sexual sin in particular. Oh, yeah. And so the reason I just start this book is, is one reason is I just know many people that are picking up this book that are going to have the desire to give an answer for Christianity. Well, first, let's just start with what's going on in our lives and let us not run out there as an army trying to defend Christianity while sexual sin, for example, is destroying the church internally. So that's really just the call for that. That is just a kind of, let's get our bearings straight. And our desire to be defenders of the faith is a good desire, but let it rest upon a commitment to live faithfully before God in every aspect of our life. You know, I noticed that uh, that divorce is on the rise in the church, and I know the statistics aren't as bad as most people think they are, since Shanti Fairhorn does some excellent research, but it's still pretty bad. And around here at our house, I've told Ali that unless we're talking about it in a more like academic and such, divorce is the D word. We treat it <laughs> like profanity. You do not yeah. say that word. It is not on the table. It is not an option. But uh, you know, divorce is bad enough. But I see so many couples in church today, and they're living together before getting married, and no one seems to register that there's a problem with this. It, it, yeah. It, it boggles my mind so much. Yeah. Well, a good image of Christianity is an apologetic in itself. Right. Um, it's something that you know, mentioning doing you know research in New Testament ethics. One of the things that both Peter and Paul were very concerned with was the public image of Christianity. And there were a couple of reasons for this. One of the reasons simply being that this new you know, religion, Christianity, very small in number, uh, against the mighty Roman Empire. And Rome was very tolerant, I'm sure you know, of religions. They would let virtually any religion exist as long as it kind of fell in line and met certain criteria. And so for that reason, uh, kind of a pragmatic reason, Peter and both Paul would give a lot of ethical instruction that resulted in a healthy public image of Christianity. Uh, so one, it just protects the body of Christ in general when you have a good image and you're not suffering uh, for doing wrong. If you suffer for doing good, so be it. But it's way worse to suffer for doing uh, evil or wrong, as Peter says in his epistle. But the other thing is a healthy public image, it doesn't create unnecessary obstacles in evangelism. And that's kind of one of the parallels in, in the first century. There was a lot of obstacles uh, to overcome in sharing the gospel. The gospel message itself of a suffering Messiah who was crucified uh, on a tree, he was hung. You know, anyone who was hung on a, on a tree is cursed. Was a stumbling block to the Jewish world, to the Greek world, to the pagan world. They didn't need added uh, an added obstacle of just the, their way that they lived their lives, what their conduct was. So, I just think that a, a healthy public image 
based on your moral conduct is a healthy apologetic for Christianity, and it avoids the having unnecessary stumbling blocks in evangelism. Yeah, when it comes to the whole problem of sexual sin, that's one reason I, I, I think marriage apologetics is so essential today. Because, you know, when unbelievers talk about how uh, it looks like all of a sudden we're suddenly interested in the sacredness of marriage when we weren't before. Right. In too many cases, there's good reason for thinking that. Because a lot yeah. of people are having to be a marriage as something sacred, and then when it becomes under comes under attack, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, yeah, we're going to defend this now, but like, where were you living this before? And I've told Allie before several, several times, and she knows this way, I said, hon, in my field, I get many compliments on what I do in apologetics and such. I enjoy that. I appreciate it. But the best compliments I ever get are when people tell me I'm being a good husband to you. That's great, and that's a good message just to yep. get out to the apologetics community. That's one of the things that I hope comes across in that first chapter. Yeah, and I've also told people, I said, listen, you know, you can go out there, you could be the next William Lane Craig, you could write all the books, you could be the one that Richard Dawkins and everyone else is scared to debate and such, but if you have not honored your spouse and honored your children properly, I ultimately count you a failure in ministry. Yeah, yeah. No, those are those are wise words. They're not the easiest ones to live out because yeah. those aren't the things that you typically get praise for. You know, you get praise for a viral blog, you get praise for a book, you get praise yeah. for the debate. Nobody praises you for doing the dishes late at night. Nobody praises you for suffering through a rocky time in your marriage when uh, both you and your wife have maybe contemplated that D word. Nobody gives you praise for that. So the things that you don't get praise and recognition for are often the harder things, but are, let's be honest, some of the most important things. Now, the next thing you talk about is humility. And one thing I like at the start of the chapter is that realizing that you are not responsible to know every answer to every question a skeptic might ask should be a huge relief. Because I meet too many people in apologetics who think they have to know everything and be experts on everything. It is impossible. You cannot. Yeah. No, that's good. And sometimes that pressure results in visible anger and ineffective conversations. Yeah. So just practically speaking, knowing that if you're in a debate or you're in a conversation with your friend or even if it's an Internet atheist, you can just simply say, I don't know to a question. And it's perfectly fine. You haven't lost anything. In fact, what I have found is a lot of times my humility expressed in an I don't know buys me more than I ever could through a, a good argument. It just shows them that here I'm, I'm not out to get you, uh, that I am humble. And what I have found is that my humility enables or it affords another person to be humble. And in humility, when guards come down, it's easier to reason, it's easier to dialogue, it's easier for them to hear the gospel and respond to it in an effective manner. So the other reason I put that there is because one of the things that I hope for this book to do is uh, address kind of a, a lay audience. I think the professional apologist certainly could benefit from reading this book, but if they've been doing their job well, they've probably been doing a lot of the, the skills in this book. One of the things that I hope this book does is that it empowers the church to start acting 
right now? Because a lot of people don't get involved in evangelism. A lot of people don't ever try to defend their faith because of the fear of, I don't have an answer. Well, just get started. You will never always have an answer. That has never, that's not going to change. And so if you're delaying until you think you have enough answers, you're going to be delaying your entire life. Just get started right now. Yeah, I've told people, I said, look, when you get started in your projects, here's what's going to happen. <clears throat> you're going to go out there, you're going to be pretty confident, you're going to encounter some people who disbelieve, who disagree with you, who think you're wrong, and you're going to get your tail feathers blown out from you. <laughs> you are going to get your butt kicked badly. Oh, yeah. That is a good thing, because that would drive well, you to study more. And how about this, Nick? How about all those times you did know all the right answers? Right. In those conversations, when you had all the right answers, did people, you know, bow down in humility and surrender their lives to Jesus on the spot right oh, there? Every single time, of course. Don't you <laughs> right. know that? Right. So that's kind of just this misconception we have is that answers are the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, answers are important. Uh, I am certainly one that hopes to encourage the church to grow in knowledge and love the Lord their God with their mind, to be as ready and equipped as they can for every question that comes their way. But let us not be so blind as to think as long as we have the right answers, people are going to respond effectively. So just this whole idea of let's get started. Don't worry if you don't have all the answers. You can say, I don't know. Humility is more valuable than knowledge. And if you're not sure, one thing you can also say is, I'm not sure, but you know what? Here's someone else who studies this field, and there's someone worth asking about. Like, for instance, when it comes to science questions, listeners of podcasts might know is I don't have many shows on science because it's not my area, and I don't know how to evaluate (laughs) things there. But I'll just say something like, you you might want to consider someone like, say, Hugh Ross, for instance, who has been on my show before, and that wasn't mainly talk about science, but talk about Asperger's. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. That's one of the reasons I agreed to come on your show is because I knew you wouldn't ask me any science questions. Yeah, because yeah. I'm just, I'm with you in that same boat. Someone will come up to me. It could be a you know a student at the church or, or somebody uh, just in public, and they'll be asking me a, a question on science. And I, I mean, I'm I'm fairly knowledgeable. I mean, I've had to read uh, part of my degrees, and so I you know I know enough to to answer some questions. But it usually usually one of the things I say is this is not my area of expertise. I'm glad to talk about this with you. I'm glad to study it even with you. But you know one thing I can do is I can introduce you to such and such or I can provide you with this book or let me get back to you. Let me write down your question and let me go do a little bit of research and then I'll come back to you. And uh, that's just a great understanding of even if when you become a professional apologist, you still have your limitations. You still have an area of expertise. And so humility is just, it needs to be in the apologetics tool belt, regardless of if you're just starting or you've been doing it for 40 years. You know, my my really sarcastic side is very tempted to ask a question about evolution right now, just to be honorary a little bit and such. (laughs) Well, you do what you like. It's your show. (laughs) And with what you were saying about you can't be an expert in everything, we had uh, Mike Lacona on a couple months ago. I'm sure that's a big shock. And we had kind of grew a Christian where I had gathered questions from Christians and non-Christians on the New Testament. And there were some questions that Mike had said, you know, I really don't know this one. This is something I haven't taken the time to study. He said, even if you're specializing in New Testament, there are still areas where you have to say, I don't have that same expertise because it is a wide, wide ocean and there is no way yeah. you can read everything. Yeah. 
No, that yeah, I've had that experience just here recently getting into New Testament scholarship. That and you get into it and you think, okay, you'll be an expert in New Testament. Uh, no, you won't. You be an expert in one narrow field within the New Testament scholarship field, and so I think it's great. I think it's great on in programs like this, or you just even mentioning Mike saying that it's just good for the church yeah. to hear the people that they respect, the people whose books they read. It's good to hear them have moments of humility where they say, you know what, that's a great question. I have no idea what the answer is to that. Let me see what I can do to find out. And I think that empowers the rest of us, the church as at large, just to be willing to enter into a conversation and risk coming to a point when you're at the limits of your knowledge. Now, let's talk a little bit about that with readiness. I mean, talking about being at the limits of your knowledge is one thing. But at the same time, there's no sense in being foolhardy. I mean, Aristotle talked about courage. I mean, talk about what he said. There's a difference between being a coward and being rash. Being rainbow yeah. and going out and facing 30 guys when all you guys are machine gun is not courage. It is stupidity. Because you are more than likely to be shot down by just one guy than you're going to take down 30 in a row. But of course, if you're in the movies, that changes everything. <laughs> yeah. saying, no. saying, I don't have to have all the answers doesn't mean I don't need to have any answers. We have to have some readiness. Yeah. And I think that is just a way that we love our neighbor, is mm-hmm. that we prepare ourselves to answer the most pressing questions they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to remember that we are uh, children of the light. We are children of truth. Our Father is the creator and the initiator of all things. In him is all wisdom and truth and knowledge. Who else, who better than the believers and the followers of Jesus Christ to offer meaningful answers to life's most pressing questions? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is us. So let us love our neighbor by loving God with our mind and being ready to give answers. I think there are just so many Christians that have drunk from the poisonous well in our society that simply says religious beliefs are fine, but they're private. They're only good for you. They're not good for anybody else. That's obnoxious. Truth is good for all people, and we have truth with a capital T. Let's learn as much of it as we can, and let's learn how to share it in an effective and a winsome way with other people because they will benefit from it. So you're exactly right. We don't need to know everything. That is not our excuse to not know anything. So let us get ready. Let us prepare our hearts. Let us prepare our minds. Let us seek to grow in knowledge and love, and, and in so doing, love this world. Well, let's talk about how to be ready a little bit, because let's imagine someone who's got a full-time job, and they listen to this podcast back and forth on the commute, and they say, you know, I, I really like this idea you're talking about being ready, but geez, I've got a family to support, I've got kids to raise, I've yeah. got a full-time job, I, I'm just so, so busy. How can I take the proper time to develop myself when I've got any free time to learning this kind of stuff. How do I do that? Yeah. Well, to that particular hypothetical person you just brought up, I would say, well, one, you are already doing it. You are using your commute to listen to a podcast that's aim is to equip you with the tools necessary. So for other people, that's that's just a, a, a good example of how you can find time that doesn't take away from... Some of your other obligations. Uh, commutes are a great opportunity in the morning when you get up listening to a podcast. So 
finding times that don't take away from your priorities is, is good and strategic. But the other thing to think about is let's just let's count a little bit of cost here. Mm. Is this a, a big deal for us? Are we really committed people to growing in knowledge so we can be effective stewards of the gospel and we can help culture to know what is true and what is good for them? If this is a serious calling on our part, we, we need to start not just fitting it into our schedule. We need to start rearranging our schedule so that we can have a bit more time to study, whether that be going to bed an hour earlier so that you can read a book or getting up an hour earlier so that you can read a book or taking a lunch break maybe two times a week instead of going out with the colleagues. You go by yourself and you read a book. Maybe it's you schedule a weekend and you take your wife if you're married or take a couple of buddies and go to an apologetics conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to cost you a little bit of money. It's going to cost you a little bit of time. You're going to have to change your schedule for this. But, but that's the way to do it. And it's good to hear that you don't have to do it all at once because I know that sometimes you hear something like this and you get paralyzed because of the feeling of, why wow, it's just too much to do. Mm-hmm. A little bit at a time is all that matters. Picking up a book here, picking up a book there, squeezing in time here and there, but doing this over the course of your life, that's the key. We want to be life learners and, you know, we live in a fast-paced society, the microwave generation, where we think if we're going to get something, it needs to be done in three minutes. Yeah. No, just take a slower approach. That's okay. You have a family. You have a job. But be a life learner. Yeah. Sometimes when people are tell me they, men especially, tell me they, they're really not sure if they can devote themselves and learn this kind of stuff and such, and it's just so much. I'll, I'm so tempted to ask, how much do you know about your favorite sports team? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I make, I make a joke in a, uh, in a in a article that I had written that it seems that Christians don't have anything meaningful to say about anything that doesn't have a mascot, meaning they can talk, all, you know, for days about sports teams, but go beyond that, and they should just be sitting at the kids' table because they don't have anything meaningful to say. So you're exactly right. Let's just let's count the cost and, and see what's at stake here and make some changes to our schedule and our lifestyle because we're serious about the gospel and we're serious about renewing society. And on the other hand, I think sometimes we can beat ourselves up if we think we're not doing enough. I'm thinking about going to my pastor recently, talking about, you know, I'm, I'm working my master's right now and saying, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder if I'm going to be able to capable of this kind of devotion and such, because I said so many times, Pastor, I go to bed at the end of the day and I wish... Dang, I wish I could have gotten a little bit more reading and such. He just looked at me and said, okay, Nick, how much reading do you usually do on a bad day like that? Hmm, maybe 20 or 30 pages. He just rolled his eyes and said, dude, you're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, and even that right there, 20 pages a day is not too much to to bite off for the just mm-hmm. anybody. I know there's people out there that aren't readers. And uh, to them, you say, well, hey, we got YouTube, man. There are so many great lectures and whatnot uh, on, uh, that you can watch or listen to. But, yeah, just a little bit at a, t- little bit at a time. One thing that I say uh, to my students when, I, when I'm teaching uh, a lot is I encourage them by saying, just because you haven't learned everything doesn't mean you haven't learned anything. Right. Because there is, in a, when you start into something new, you always get overwhelmed by, I'll never get it. So I was teaching a class on uh, just kind of a classic reliability of the New Testament uh, class. 
And after about the third week, you could just tell that the, the people in the class, they had this, their eyes were just, whoa, I'm just never going to get all of this. So I gave them an assignment to come back the next week and just having written down everything you know now that you didn't know three weeks ago. And everything counts. It can be simply you didn't know how many books were in the New Testament, and now you know that. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, profound. It can be something small like that. Mm-hmm. They, all, they did the assignment. They came back, and every one of them had just a very encouraging response to that because they had sheets of paper filled. And that's just a good principle to remember to, you know, your, your point, your question of the guy that says, I want to get started, but I'm a little bit overwhelmed. I don't know how much time I can give to it. Well, just start giving a little bit of time and just know that just because you haven't learned everything doesn't mean you haven't learned anything. And over the course of your life, you will be much more effective in evangelism. You will be much more effective in giving answers because you have started now, however small it is. Yeah. I've actually poured something up on my Facebook, for instance, that I've got a birthday coming up next week. And so I'm giving what every responsible person does, thinking about what I want to get. And yeah. I've said, you know, what I'd like to get sometime, in fact, is something from my Kindle Fire, so I can listen while in the car or put it outside while I'm taking a shower or anything like that. Because, I mean, those can just be good, good learning times. And I found that a Kindle is a remarkable way to get in some great reading. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And, and one other trick of the trade, this is something that I do myself, um, is if there's a book that I want to read, not a book that I have to read, uh, a good book that's out there that I think, you know, I, it would be good for me to read it, but it's not a have to because it's not a part of the sermon, ser- you know, uh, you know, it's not a part of Revelation right now, that the book of the Bible we're preaching through at our church, or, yeah. you know, it's not in the field of New Testament scholarship, but I really want to read it, but it's hard to justify the time or have the uh, the motivation to do it when your hours are limited. One thing I do is I find somebody else to read a book with and agree to meet with them, uh, even if it's just over the phone, uh, once a week. Because the accountability of knowing, oh, tomorrow I'm supposed to discuss chapter one with this guy is the uh, accountability that I need often uh, mm-hmm. to read it. So yeah. for you, that the person listening that, that struggles, they, get, you know, they buy the book and then it sits on their shelf, you know, collects dust. Uh, a good little trick that I do is I find someone else, it could be your spouse, it could be a buddy at church, it could be a coworker, Say, hey, I want to read this book. You want to read it together? We can talk about it you know, every Thursday morning. And having that accountability is often what you need to, to actually see it through. It might surprise some people that even those of us in the apologetics field, sometimes we have to work to read books because just like everyone else, there are other things we'd rather be doing sometimes. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Now, one other thing you talk about is preparation and prayer. And like I said, I'm that because I think too many people are so set themselves up for failure at this. And say something like, well, I need to develop a prayer life, so I'm going to start spending an hour a day in prayer. And if I hear someone say, I think, you're setting yourself up for failure because you're not going to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's key. Uh, Just in in any aspect, any field that the, the believer is involved in, that often we just do, 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 and we place all of the responsibility and the burden on, on our back. And uh, we neglect the simple disciplines of the Christian faith, that of spending time in, in prayer with our Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's, uh, you don't want to set yourself up for failure and just start small. 
start by getting up 15 minutes early, um, take 15 minutes out of your lunch break, and just develop a habit of continual prayer that it's always at the front of your mind to be, you know, shooting out sentences in your mind to your Heavenly Father. I think that's the, the idea of pray without ceasing, that you have the realization that I am to be always in fellowship and communion uh, with, my, with my Father in Heaven. Now, the next section is one section that initially when I read the book, I thought you and I might have some disagreements on here, and that's <laughs> gentleness and respect. Because there are yeah, many yeah. times, I mean, I don't believe in being gentle sometimes in some situations, depending on the skeptic I deal with. Right. And if anyone's watched me on Facebook, there have been times someone's posted something on my wife's page that if you disagree with her, okay, that's fine. But if you are insulting to her, I'll step in and people are look and say, yeah, you don't go on Allie's page and cause a ruckus because her husband watches that page like a hawk. And if you yeah. go after her, all bets are off. Uh, I'm turning into a monster, and I'm coming after you because I defend her to no end. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Well, no, that, that's a great a great point. And the thing about gentleness and respect is, one, I think gentleness is a disposition as much as it is an action. Meaning, if my son is drowning. Mm -hmm. Gentleness isn't my concern. You know, I'm not right. jumping into the ocean worrying about, oh, gosh, I hope I don't bruise his arm or something like that. No, I'm going to use appropriate force needed yeah. based on the situation. And I think that's how you can apply it, that certain situations uh, require you to leave gentleness behind because of a greater concern or a greater threat uh, to the good of yourself or someone that you care about or society at large, I think I could argue that. Um, but by and large, you know, what we're talking about is, is gentleness in an approach to conversing with our friends, that we don't need to be overly sarcastic. And I, I can say that because sarcasm runs in the Sherrard family tree. Oh, yeah. Our, our, our first words are sarcastic words. Uh, yeah. So I really had to learn on how to, to speak just directly uh, without the – the wit and the cleverness that comes in sarcasm. That's my positive spin on it. My, um, so my, just by and large, you know, we're, oh, sorry, Nick, I cut you off. Go ahead. My elderly aunt and uncle live next door to us, and my parents live next door to us also. And so when my wife and I first moved here, I took her over to see my aunt, and she was having a hard time getting used to the way things are here. And... My aunt said, oh, we're a sarcastic all the time over here, but we don't mean it. And I just jumped up and he said, we don't? And <laughs> when she first went back to see her family, after seeing mine, they were saying, why are you being so sarcastic? And I said, oh, I'm not around Nick's family anymore. This is different. Because in our family, everyone is sarcastic. Yeah. Yeah, so the idea with gentleness is I'm not going to harm you gratuitously. I'm not going to harm you for no reason. If harm does come to you, it is because of a very, very, very good reason. But I would even argue this. The harm that comes to you is either for your good or it's to stop you from doing a great evil. Exactly. Um, the classic example of if you come to my door and you insult me and you slap me on my cheek, well, I'll, I'll let you insult me twice. You know, I'll let you insult me again and slap me 
on my other cheek. But I'm not going to be the doormat for the evil man that's going to walk into the house and take advantage of my daughters. Yeah. You know, there's there's that reconciliation of uh, Christian principles of humility and gentleness and being willing to take an insult and seeking peace whenever available, but also not being doormats for evil. And so that's a hard thing to reconcile, and it's 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 not always in every situation. It's not a clear uh, there's not a clear answer that there are morally complicated situations or there are eth- true ethical dilemmas. And uh, but so anyways, but by and large, our approach in evangelism and, and engaging in ideas is one of a gentle disposition where we extend respect to people. And at one level, even if a person ha- holds utterly ridiculous ideas or they commit heinous acts of evil, we still are to afford them res- the respect as image bearers of God, and that as a human they have full dignity and value before God. That doesn't mean that there aren't appropriate consequences that need to come to them, um, but there is always at least one level of respect that I think we extend, and this is how we can even love our enemies, is because we understand that they are image bearers of God, and at that level that there is respect to be given. I think there's also a difference between, say, your typical water cooler conversation and a conversation in a public forum, such as on yeah. the Internet. Because yeah. if you're on the right. Internet, you're going to encounter people who they have no interest in the truth whatsoever. They don't care about debate. They just want to go out there and make Christians look stupid. And when I encounter those people, my goal is to shut them down. And some people say, well, you're probably not going to win them to Jesus. I'm not trying to win them to Jesus. Right now, I don't care about that. Right now, what I care about is they are preventing other people from coming to Jesus, and they are damaging Christianity, and I want to stop them at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I think Christians are allowed to use strong language, uh, forceful tones, especially in a public setting, because you're exactly right that a lot of times, you hear a lot of people that say, I'm not going to get involved in Internet uh, debates because you never change the person's mind, or people will say that public debates have no value because... You know, how often is that atheist ever going to change his mind? But you said it well. It, it's not often that person. It's the audience yep. that is the target. And uh, so, yeah, so whether it is using strong, stern, forceful language in a public setting uh, because you want to uh, speak to the audience more than the person, I think that's, yeah. that's, that's good. There is a great deal of wisdom that always needs to be held that, though, because yeah. there are going to be people that run off and go, great, I can grab my megaphone and say whatever I want to yeah. you know, show the unbelieving world how stupid they are, and they're obviously going to go too far with this. Uh, one of the things that i found, though, is common sense isn't all too common in the body of Christ. So this goes back to prayer. We need to constantly be in prayer that God gives us wisdom and discernment, knowing how and when to use forceful language. Yeah. What I tell people is that, you know, we often have a thing that every... If all you guys are hammer, everything will look like a nail. Where if all you guys are hug, everything will look like a kitten. There are <laughs> sheep and there are wolves out there. And a good yeah. shepherd carries a rod and he carries a staff. And part of wisdom is knowing when to use which. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And I think one example you use of a group that you don't really give respect like that to is abortion activists. Am I right? Uh, yeah, well, and re- respect in the sense that I I, I do respect them as mm-hmm. image bearers of God, and I will would yeah. seek to preserve uh, their their life. I would seek to 
preserve a society in which uh, they their lives are fulfilled. Um, but I don't respect their position at all. I think that their position is is not only wrong, uh, it is very, it's evil in nature that it results in the shedding of innocent blood. And so I don't respect their opinions, I assert their, their views. I, I'm certainly not one to say, well, let's just agree to disagree. Yeah. There are some things where you, you cannot do that. You can just not agree to disagree. You cannot afford that idea any respect because of how vile and harmful it is. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had Glenn Stanton on talking about marriages, what marriages and why it matters. And one thing I asked him is a classic question because I knew a lot of people were wondering about it. I said, what do you do when someone hears your stance on mar- marriage and calls you know, like a bigger homophobe, hater, or things like that? And he says, you know, when someone starts saying that to me, that's what I say about it. I just say, how dare you? How dare you make a moral accusation towards me when all I've given is a stance and I've given some reasons for it? How dare you try and turn this into a slugfest like that? I mean, I I can't do it justice, but I suggest you go back and listen to that show and hear what he said because I thought he was absolutely right with that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's appropriate in many cases. Now, the next thing you said to do is listen. Well, at least I think that's what you said. I'm not sure if I was paying attention. <laughs> nice one, nice one. Yeah. yeah listening, it, it, it's something very difficult for a lot of us, I think, in the projects, fear occurs. We're human beings, and we're already analyzing every single thing. We're picking out all the flaws, picking <laughs> out all the things that we're doing wrong. <clears throat> and unfortunately, if you're an apologist, that's something very, very difficult to shut off. So that, in, for instance, your married life, you're listening to what your wife's saying about, well, I'm feeling this way because such and such, and you're analyzing, here's the logical disconnection, here's the lack of evidence at this point. <laughs> and so many married men will tell you, and some might be fair to realize, that at that point, she does not want an answer, she just wants to be heard. Yep. Listening is very difficult, though. So. Yeah, it's difficult for everybody. I don't know hardly anybody that is good at, at listening, and whether you're a professional apologist, a New Testament scholar, uh, or not. Everybody is jumping to conclusions. We, we put people in categories before we actually hear them. We respond to the position we think people have instead of res- responding to the actual position. But one of the things I'm sure you found, uh, Nick, is that people are complicated. They're not oh, yeah. nice and neat like textbooks. Mm-hmm. You know, we read about opposing positions. We read about opposing viewpoints. Mm-hmm. But people don't hold beliefs that nice and neat. No, and I find, I find often, too, that you know, Christians are, are often bashed at, you know, they just don't know why they believe what they believe. Well, that's true pretty much of everybody in the United States. Yeah. We live in a land of assumptions more than we live in a land of mm-hmm. beliefs. We're on the other side of a of a pl- of pluralism in which we have people that just think that whatever they feel is good enough. If I feel something, it's good. So we don't have a, a contemplative society anymore. We don't have a society that lives a life of the examined mind or anything a life examined at all. Yeah. So nobody has really thought about their beliefs. And so if you just respond to the position you think they have, you're going to be wrong more times than not. And so just actually hearing them is such a obvious uh, important point, but one that is so neglected. So some of the things that I do to help me listen is 
I'll jot down what they're saying. If, I, if I'm at my office and someone comes in and talks to me, I always open up my notepad and say, hey, do you mind if I do this? It's just so if I hear something, I can write it down to make sure I heard you well. Or if I'm out, you know, I at least have my phone and I'll get my phone out and get my notepad out. And so what I do is I often will interrupt in respectful ways and say, wait a minute, let me make sure I understood what you just said. Because you know what it's like in conversation. Sometimes oh, yeah. it's just hard to listen because people are doing what I'm doing right now, talking forever. So it's hard to just keep up with everything they've said. And, and often people jump from one thing to the next and they're switching topics mid-sentence. You know, yeah. so it's, it's not a nice, neat conversation. So just stopping them to say, hey, let me make sure I think, I think you might have just said a couple different things and I don't want to miss it. Hang on, I think the first thing you said was, uh, you have a hard time believing in a God that would let uh, children starve in other countries. Is, is that what you said? Did I hear that right? And if you just do that, if you repeat back to people what you think they said, that is such an effective way to actually hear them, and it also buys you time to think about how to effectively respond. I've been told that when the medievals debated one another on various theological and philosophical points, that there was a rule they had that if you were in a debate with someone, you were not allowed to respond to them until you repeated their argument back to them in your own words to their satisfaction. Uh, that is a great practice for every Christian to... Um, to develop and, and hone because I can't tell you how many conversations I've been a part of where a person is responding to something I never said right. or I'm listening to two other people going back and forth and they're just talking past each other. They're not addressing what the actual the other person is actually even saying. Mm -hmm. I, I think this also happens when we get so caught up in methodologies that we forget the persons involved. I mean, for instance, we were visiting my in-laws this weekend. Gary Happermass and his wife come for Labor Day also, and Gary is a big advocate of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And I think cognitive behavioral therapy is wonderful, but it's not going to work if you don't listen to what the other person is saying. And seeing as he's helped me through some issues, he's had to listen to me and say, Okay, here's specifically what you're saying, here's specifically what you're doing, and now here's how the method will help you. But if you put the method first instead of a person first, it's just going to lead to trouble. Yeah, so that's a great, that's a great principle to follow. Mm -hmm. Always put the person first. Respond to people, not their positions. Respond mm -hmm. to the individual in front of you, not just the beliefs you think they hold. And this is also important because some people think that there can often be a sort of silver bullet in apologetics. And people come to me and they say, well, my son, my daughter is falling away, something like that. Can you talk to them? I say, yeah, I can talk to them, but unfortunately I also can't make you any promises. I can say everything. It doesn't mean they're going to come. And if they're not willing to listen, they're not willing to dialogue, I'm going to be wasting my time. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's, you're exactly right. My wife, um, she has a, a grad degree in um, school counseling, uh, a counselor at a public school. And I remember when uh, she was going through it, she, like probably many people that go through a counseling 
uh, program, they think that, well, I'm going to learn how to solve problems. I'm going to learn how to give the right answer. I'm going to learn to know what to say. And she said, but what I found out is that the key to counseling is really more of hearing what they're saying and helping them to work through their own problems and come to an understanding themselves. Now, of course, a lot of counseling, especially at a a public university, is driven by enlightenment ideas and and whatnot. So not all of it is good, but there are some good things that can be taken away from that. And I think there is, we see the same thing in apologetics, that people come to apologetics because they want to learn what to say. How do I answer that question? And it's misguided by the notion of this knowledge is going to be the magic bullet, that once I deliver it, the conversation's over, the person's going to be saved, I'm going to be the hero, the story's going to move on to a happy ending, and that very rarely ever happens. And so just learning how to listen is such a key uh, thing for the apologist. It's, again, these are some of the things that are, if you, and like, just the reason I wrote the book is because if you don't have a lot of these skills, your knowledge really isn't going to do any good. It's not going to be effective. It's not going to be heard. It's going to be wasted knowledge. You're going to have facts that are irrelevant to people because you don't know how and when to give it to them. Now, the next point you say to do is to ask questions. And this is something I know Hugh Hewitt is very big about in his book, In But Not Of. So if you're somewhere and you don't know what to do, what to say, just ask questions. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I had a, a woman come into my office uh, not too long ago, and um, she was asking a question about the church because there was somebody that, that showed up and, and just asked, uh, is this a full gospel church? And the woman didn't really know how to, to answer that. She said, well, I mean, I, do we preach the whole gospel? Uh, yeah, we do. And they said, oh, so that means you're a Holy Ghost church. And uh, so she she came into the office. She said, how do I answer that? What, are, are we a Holy Ghost church? What does that even mean? Or what, what should I have said to that? And I said, well, what I would have done is I would have asked them a question. I would have said, when they asked me, are you a full gospel church? I would have said, well, what does that mean to you? What, what, what is your understanding of a full gospel church? And just that ability to know how to ask a question is a, a valuable skill, even outside of the world of apologetics. But this goes in line back to what I was saying with listening and not assuming you know what a person means. Uh, asking a question really gets to the heart of what, what, where they're coming from. Because a lot of times people just throw out phrases, they throw out sound bites, and they don't even really know what they're saying. They're just regurgitating something they've read out of a book. And a lot of people that you're talking with have misconceptions and misunderstandings. And if you just respond to what they give you, you're not going to be effective because it's not even really what is is bothering them or what is troubling them. And so learning to ask an insightful question, I have just found to be incredibly beneficial. Besides, it's one way to help you not have to be a walking encyclopedia just answering every question that uh, you uh, is thrown your way. So, yeah, anyways, uh, asking questions is, is a huge skill to develop. I like to remind one at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest today is Michael Sherrard, who wrote the book Relational Apologetics. Next week, we're going to be talking about an interesting story. Some of you have seen this story going around about the Mormon church releasing information about Joseph Smith's 
theorist tell me that he used to read the supposed golden plates of a Book of Mormon. We're going to be talking about that, and our guest is going to be someone who's been on here before. Rob Bowman is going to be coming back to the Deeper Waters podcast to talk about the Seer Stone and what it means for our conversations with Mormons. So if you're interested in Mormonism and this story, come back next week. Now you were talking on there, something that really resonated with me was you know, about people are giving arguments they don't know what they're talking about. They just read it on Google or, geez, maybe actually the bastion of all intellectual truth, Wikipedia, as well. <laughs> and part of the problem we have in our culture today is we live in the meme culture. Oh, yeah. Where oh, yeah. People put forward a meme. Now, I love memes if they're illustrations of great arguments meant to make a humorous point and such. But when a meme becomes the argument itself, that is a problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I uh, another one of the memes that is going around, too, I'm sure people have seen it, is uh, the meme with Inigo Mantoya uh, yeah. from The Princess Bride. You keep using oh, yeah. that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah. Well, I think you find that all the time in conversation or the internet atheist debate. And a, a great example, I think, is the word bigot. That word, uh-huh. and you brought it up, where it keeps getting thrown around. And as a, a Christian, if you're being accused of being a bigot, you can respond in a couple of ways. One way is you can go, no, I'm not. And then they're going to go, yes, you are. And then you're going to say, no, I'm not. And they're going to say, yes, you are. But here's an example where you can just ask a question where you say, you just called me a bigot. Can you explain to me what you mean? What is it that you're calling? Because in, in two, for two reasons. One is, you're going to find the person that has no idea what that word means. <laughs> They're just throwing it out there because they've seen someone else use it in a similar context. But when you ask that question, it really puts the person back on their heels. I mean, just think about all the times you've ever been asked a question that you weren't ready for. Oh, yeah. it, it unrattles it, it unrattles you. It, it unnerves you. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's our goal. Our goal here is to, to unrattle or unnerve a skeptic. But what it can do is it can diffuse a situation sometimes, especially in something like that where somebody's coming at you, they're insulting you, or they're being aggressive, and you put it right back to them by saying, you use that word. What, how, why are you calling me that? What does that word mean? And then it affords you the opportunity to actually have a conversation and a dialogue instead of just a back and forth, no, I'm not, yes, you are, no, I'm not, yes, you are, yeah, oh, yeah, well, you're a this, and then it just turns into a, a heated debate. So questions are so valuable, and it's just a, a skill that we all need to get better at. Uh. Yeah, another term that I think is misunderstood other than bigot is the word faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. No, because uh, Peter Bogosian had a five-minute claim to fame here recently where he said faith was pretending to know what you don't know. I think that was his his definition, yeah. right? Yeah, in culture, that uh, people throw around the word faith as that which you have when you can't know what something, you know, when you can't have an actual answer. And that is certainly not uh, a biblical understanding of faith. So you're exactly right. That's another word that is thrown around a bit too loosely without a good understanding of it. Yeah, you talk about his five-minute claim to fame. I think Tim McGrew had a little something to do with shutting that down. When yeah, we have that yeah. Debate. If you can call a debate on Unbelievable, and I think that's the exact same thing that happened, that Tim McGrew pushed back on Goshen and said, okay, that's about faith. What does that mean? 
and started right. giving definitions of it, and Peter Bogosian had no answer for it whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. But asking questions is just, in general, a great tactic for the believer. Yeah, Greg Kogel's book, Tactic, is a fantastic book to read. It's, it's one of the best books that I've read, definitely uh, formative in my own life. Um, but Christians have to remember we don't have to just be uh, got people that are going to put on the spot and have to answer and be nothing but answer machines or the answer man. Yeah. We can ask questions ourselves, and we can push back and make people provide reasons and a justification for their beliefs instead of just being people that try to find answers to their questions. In fact, this goes back several thousand years. I mean, this is basically the Socratic method right here. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, right. And in fact, also when you're talking to other people and you don't know them, asking questions usually works very well because even that, all people seem to have this strange interest in themselves and they don't really mind a lot of times talking about themselves. And yeah, right. Yep. Asking questions is a good way to keep conversations calm because you're right. People do like to talk about themselves when you ask them questions. Now, of course, I'm assuming you're asking them not to be spiteful. You're not asking them yeah. in a rude, mocking, you know, form of condescension or anything. But just asking questions is a way to show a general interest in a person, makes them feel respected, keeps conversations calm, and it opens uh, just pathways for effective dialogue. Now, you move on there to staying on topic. And now, looks bad. I remember Ravi Zacharias once said that Part of the problem our culture can be demonstrated in morning talk shows where people will switch from talking about morality to ice cream to the origin of the universe all within five <laughs> minutes and all with equal passion. I know. Yeah, yeah. When of, course we know I, ice, when, of course, we know ice cream is one they should be the most passionate about. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Staying on topic is really hard for several reasons. One, as you, Ravi does point out, just the media, uh, the exposure to media that we have, it is so fast-paced, and everything has segued into something else. But it's also hard to stay on top of it because, like I said before, people don't have nice, neat, organized uh, beliefs or thoughts. It's just kind of random. Yeah. And at any point in a conversation, say on just the nature of truth, anything else might come into that conversation that is not related to it. And so you have to be careful, and this is where listening plays a role. This is where being able to ask a question plays a role so that you can keep conversations as neat as possible and being able to stay on one topic at a time. You know, this is part of the problem when people don't think about their worldviews and why they believe and think what they think because I'll meet so many Internet skeptics out there who haven't really thought about Christian answers or, heck, their own answers. And they'll present an, an objection to me, and I know they're sitting back saying, Zinga, ha ha, got you on this one. Yeah. And I think, dude, you're not even making me blink, okay? I've thought about this question back. Here's something I've written on it. Here's a podcast that I did on this question. Why haven't you done your homework? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that just a good, um, a good example of the importance of staying on topic. Uh, one that's just current right now also, it's just the abortion debate. Uh, the most important topic within abortion, really the only one that should matter and is relevant, is what is the unborn? Yeah. But just for the listeners today, 
How many conversations, or just think to the last time you got into an argument, perhaps about abortion, was it about the status of the unborn? It may have started there, but likely it went to any number of things other than that, things such as economic equality, uh, 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 an injustice such as a rape, uh, a birth defect known about, uh, a woman's right to choose. These are all secondary topics. It's an example of topic switching, and the most important question, the most relevant topic, never was answered because you got lost in an argument about a woman's bodily autonomy, you know, instead of just focusing on the one topic, what is the unborn? And an abortion debate, is this is a great way to do this. As soon as you start talking to somebody and say, well, you know what, I actually would agree with you and say that a woman has a right to do with her body and she should have the right to choose to abort if that fetus is not human. But if it is human, then it deserves protection, and it deserves uh, namely protection and the right to life. And that just keeps the conversation focused on the thing that is most important and most relevant. But across the board, Christians need to develop the skill of being able to just stay on topic and not let them just drift wherever they want. One other example I think of this going to a meme culture is when Kim Davis had her stand recently, there were memes going around saying, yeah, sacredness of marriage, she's been divorced three times. Of course, they ignored that all these divorces happened before she became a Christian. But you hear people talk about yeah, these people are saying this. They're hypocrites because they haven't practiced the sacredness of marriage themselves. And I see, I think, so what? Right, yeah. They're hypocrites, but it doesn't mean their stance is wrong. Right. Yeah, our discussion, like the Kim Davis one, our discussion is a legal discussion here. Mm-hmm. It's not just a sanctity of marriage question. Right. So, and that is an example currently of topic switching. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, and along the same lines, I think they also try and say, where this is about religion and the role of religion in public sport, where it is to some extent, but it, when you say that, it assumes the whole question is a purely religious question. And I say, no, it, it's not purely religious. It's metaphysics as well. That's why when someone says, well, what would you think about implementing Sharia law? I just look like, you don't even understand what's being talked about here. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, the next section you have is stick with what you know, which goes with the whole thing you were saying earlier about how uh, we like to think we can be masters of everything and we wander into an area we don't really know where and we get ourselves embarrassed. And what's even worse is we're not just embarrassing ourselves, we're embarrassing Christianity. Yeah, yeah. This is just a way to protect your own credible, uh, your own credibility, mm-hmm. and the credibility even of Christianity. And it's simply this: it's built upon the the understanding that if you make a claim, you bear the responsibility of supporting and proving that claim. Right. You can't just say the Bible is the most reliable document in all of antiquity, mm-hmm. without the ability to prove that. But yeah. Christians are notorious for just throwing out their one-liners because they. They've heard it from someone else, or they read it in a book. And, you know, knowing something and it having value and benefit to you, perhaps it has encouraged you and solidified your faith, is is one thing. 
being able to use it though in an argument uh, to persuade somebody else is something else and we have to be very careful again this, this the book kind of really just each chapter builds and all of these uh, skills and tactics and principles they build upon one another and I keep coming back to one is the just the remembering there is no magic bullet so right. don't just throw out these zingers <laughs> thinking it doesn't matter it's actually dangerous for you if yeah. you aren't uh, a, a, an expert in uh, the reliability of the New Testament don't start throwing out stats like you are because inevitably you're, you're not going to be able to support it and there's also a worse danger that you're going to use uh, information incorrectly because you haven't understood it fully so not only are you not going to be effective because one-liners don't really help anyways there's a good chance that you're misleading them by giving them information in the wrong context or you're using it to support a conclusion that it actually doesn't and so this again is just throughout this first kind of section of the book, going through these tactics, encouraging us to move, encouraging us to act. It's also just kind of a, a bookend, kind of like a chiasm, kind of reminder to don't go too far. Stay within your limits. What's um, <clears throat> better, let's go back to New Testament reliability, for example. Rather than just throwing it out there as a matter of fact, to the person that's questioning the reliability of Scripture, you can say, well, you know, I really think that it is. I've heard other people give lectures on it. I've read a couple of things, but I'm not an expert in it. But would you want to study it with me? Or could we you know, maybe agree upon reading a couple books together and us kind of have our own dialogue about it? A much more effective way than to just be this faux expert throwing out a bunch of claims. Yeah, when you talk about people just throwing out claims and such, one thing that comes to my mind immediately is I find I continuously have to be <clears throat> a watchdog on social media. Yeah. And this includes with people I know and love many times who will share posts about things that they've just seen on someone else's wall and they'll share it. And I'll have to go and look at it and say, um, no, no, this isn't true. Yeah. I remember seeing a conservative website once share something that a Muslim was supposedly saying to deny that the earth was flat back in 2014 and all these people and I consider myself conservative all these people are popping up and saying boy look at how stupid it is yep that's what that religion does to you over and over and then I posted something with my thing said sorry guys this story is false this guy never said that it's a misrepresentation did that stop anyone from still going on and on nope not a bit but to the credit what I did do was I wrote a blog post on that and what organization misused it? I think I named them specifically, and then put that up there. And I know it's a few days later that picture was down. Yeah. So that's another kind of example similar to yeah. sticking with what you know is is using only information that you know is trustworthy and reliable. Right. Uh, how many times have you seen an article in social media from a satirical site, like but the person posting it didn't know it was satire? And so they're posting it to prove a point, and then they look like a fool because uh, this isn't a true story. It was actually just poking fun. It was satire and filled with sarcasm. So, right, stick with what you know. Only use information that you know is true and reliable. Only offer claims that you can support reasonably. I remember being part of a debate site once, and someone posted something about how ancient historians admit ancient Greek civilization was made up 
and saying, see, even historians know it. <laughs> and I just looked, source, onion.com. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> and but you can find news stories online where they talk about real people who have been fooled by the Onion and shared stories. Even major news organizations have been fooled by satirical websites before. Yeah, well, and, you know, we live in the day of uh, every, the expert. You know, there's so many experts out there. But it's also, you know, yeah, and you would know, it's, it's a logical fallacy. Just simply the appeal to authority doesn't settle anything. And how many people throw out, well, scientists have concluded this, or geologists say this, and that actually doesn't prove anything. All that proves is there are people that are experts in a field that think like you do. You haven't actually argued for anything. You've just said someone else thinks like me or someone else has said this. It hasn't proved anything. And I know that we're getting uh, a bit off our own topic here, but that's just being important to stick with what you know. Don't be an expert and don't just throw out claims that have come from an expert thinking that's actually going to solve anything. Yeah, what we're talking about here is a little bit of what's called the cult of the amateur. And I'm thinking the cult, my, say my, that again. I, I, I missed it. I missed the, what you said there. The cult of the amateur. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking that when I had my debate with Ken Humphreys about maybe a year or so ago, about a, I asked him about the story. I said, okay, and for those who don't know, Ken Humphreys runs JesusNeverExisted.com. So we debated on if Jesus was a real historical person. So I said, okay, um, Ken, uh, let me ask you something. You talk about the Gospels. What genre do you think the Gospels are in? Historical fiction. Okay, <laughs> do you have any scholars that support that claim? I got a list of scholars as long as your arm. Okay. And I knew what list he was talking about. I said, what's your definition of a scholar? And there was a lot of hearing and such back in me. And he said, well, anyone who can write in English and make a good persuasive argument and such, pretty much, I, I consider them a scholar. Okay, this sure tells me a lot. And the problem with the call of the amateur is we think if anyone can get out there and they have a blog or a YouTube channel or such, they obviously know what they're talking about. Now, they could, because, I mean, I don't have advanced degrees and I've got a blog and a YouTube channel and such, but it doesn't mean they do. Yeah. Well, and this just even, I think Mike talks about this some in uh, his book, uh, The Resurrection of Jesus, but just the value and the role of the consensus. Because we just, you know, we do that. We want to know what's the list of scholars that agree with my position. And there certainly is a place for consensus. Yeah. But we also know the nature of scholarship, that what the consensus was 10 years ago often isn't what the consensus is today. Yeah. And if all you do is spend your time arguing your for your position based on consensus. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you're really mm -hmm. arguing for anything other than saying, look at how many other people agree with me, yeah. I must be right. It's more important, it's important to know what scholars think, but it's more important to know why scholars yeah. think what they yeah. think. Yeah. And this, yeah. is, this is something Bart Ehrman does, where he says, you go and you look, all of these scholars and all these institutions agree with me. Well, yeah, if you ignore all the evangelical scholarship and all the other scholarship that disagrees with you, then yeah, it's easy to say all scholars agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, it's good to not think that, you know, to compare your work with the consensus, to not have the arrogance of thinking, I'm the person that's going to be right while everybody else is wrong. It's, yep. it's important to seriously consider 
why the consensus is saying what they're saying, yeah. but just simply an appeal to it I don't think is very valuable. And especially when that consensus consists of people on both sides of the argument. Right, yeah, very good. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point that this is the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do is listener supported, and we sure could use your support. I mean, I'm working on my master's right now. It costs a lot, and keeping things going here, and we give out this ministry free of charge to everyone the blog's done free of charge, and like, this is, I mean, we're talking about spending time day. Doing the show is a couple hours every Saturday for me and for my guests, and then I've got the extra time afterwards I have to spend going through and formatting everything and getting up there and still doing blog posts, and there's a lot of other work I'm doing that a lot of people <coughs> don't see. But everything you give contributes to that. And I'd really like to encourage you to give. Now, if you want to give, just go to deeperwaters.ddns.net. And there's a link you can find there to support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And when you click that link, it'll take you to Risen Jesus, the ministry in Mike Lacona. Have you gone to the right place? You sure have. You make your donation there. When you do it that way... It's tax deductible if you're a 501c3 by Risen Jesus. When you email me or Mike or Debbie, one of us, or you maybe message us on Facebook, some way you get in touch with us and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And we will get every penny that you donate there. We'll make sure of that. And if you can set up to be a monthly donor, that'd be great. And we've had some people that have come and made donations. Lately, they've contacted me. As soon as they contact me, I send a message to Debbie immediately. She knows to be on the lookout for your donation and where to send it. You can also buy some of the e-books that we've got for sale, such as oh, my book, A Creed for the Ages, A Look at the Apostles' Creed, and then books I've written in tandem with my ministry partner, J.P. Holdings, such as Groundless or Defining Inerrancy. And even God and Natural Disasters, which I co wrote with an atheist, a debate that we had. And then there are books that we sell, and yes, I still need to do some work on this section that have been talked about on the show. And finally, guys, we were talking about good marriage techniques earlier on the show. I'm not sure how many of you have noticed this, but a lot of women seem to love jewelry for some reason. I mean, we guys, we don't care too much about it, but for women, we really love it. How would you like? To earn some really good brownie points with your wife the next time you do something really stupid, which we all know is going to come. Well, in that case, go and click the link to support us through buying jewelry. And in the code word love, and buy through our partner there, Lena Cluster at Premier Jewelry. And here's the deal. You go, you buy yourself a piece of jewelry to give to your wife. Very thoughtful, touching gift. And 25% of your purchase goes to Deeper Waters. Now, that, that's a good deal. You can get right there. Get brownie points for the next time you do something really stupid to you, with your wife, which we are husbands know we're going to do it again. And you know what? You get to support a ministry at the same time. Now, Michael, do you have any organization, charity, you'd like to encourage people to give to? Oh, I would just, I would just say that... Uh for people that enjoy your work, that it is good for them to give. And I would just take the time right now just to encourage people to, those that have listened and have enjoyed uh, Nick's work, both in writing and through his podcast, I would just encourage you to go ahead and give uh, through the means that, that Nick has expressed. 
Now, let me ask you something also, since you've said you're a pastor at a church, and we're talking about apologetics. How does that work with your own ministry at your church? Do you weave this into your sermons, or what exactly? Yeah, I take a very uh, <laughs> gentle approach with it, and, and what I mean by that is I, I'm not throwing it in their face. Right. One of the things that um, I understand there, there's tension and there's frustration in the apologetics community right now. There's, it's, there seems to be a tendency to be very critical of the church and of pastors, and I can understand it. I can understand that when you're very passionate about something, and you see its value and you see how it is good for the church, that you can become frustrated if you don't think that your pastor gets it or it's just not happening as fast as you can. Well, one of the things that, that I just know being in the pastor is apologetics isn't only what the body of Christ needs. Um, it may have a bit more value today because of the culture that we live in. Uh, it certainly needs to be a priority in the church, but it is not all that there is. And to the family, to the husband and wife that are seriously considering divorce, mm -hmm. they don't need a pastor that's beating them over the head to read, you know, love the Lord your God with your mind. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so that I try to take a balanced approach where uh, I pastor and I care for the church in a comprehensive way, which does mean encouraging them to be faithful with their mind and to love God accordingly, to grow in knowledge as a way to worship him but also as a way to love your neighbor as yourself, becoming more ready and equipped to answer their questions and to lead them to Jesus Christ. So the way that we've done it at our church is we've done a topical series. I mentioned earlier about the reliability of the New Testament, for example, uh, whether it's a tactic series you know, based off of my book. Uh, so we do it like that. We encourage our church to go uh, to conferences. And in a couple of weeks here, the National Christian Apologetics Conference will be in Charlotte, and of course I'm speaking at it, and we encourage people from our church to go because it's not too far. Uh, we will have sermons that address it. We have even done sermon series that are apologetics in nature, but it is not the most important thing to me, and it's not the most important thing to the church, so I want them to learn to love knowledge, and you cannot get somebody to love knowledge by beating them over the head with books, so to speak. It can't just be up front and in their face. So we approach it in a very uh, comprehensive way, uh, a, a direct way, but not in a way that's just up in front in your face. You know, that ties into the next part of your book where you talk about truth. And I really think this is something we've lost sight of in church because we've become so feelings-oriented that we forgot about truth. And... I fear too many times that our worship services are meant to get people to feel a certain way instead of to give them truth. Yeah, I think worship writing, modern worship writing, suffers a bit too much from kind of just postmodernism or individualism on steroids, mm -hmm. where a lot of worship songs are self-centered. They're, they're geared at what I'm going to do. For the Lord, or how I feel about Him, yeah. uh, a lot of worship songs uh, could really be romantic love songs if you just change the yeah. subject. And even on some of them, you could sing them as they are to your spouse, and it probably communicates the same thing. And that's fine. I mean, it's 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 certainly appropriate to worship God in song by expressing your desire to serve Him in a certain way or to express your feelings about Him. I mean, the Psalmist and, and David certainly did that. 
But I think we've lost a little bit about worshiping God through song simply by focusing on who he is and what he has done. And so in the church and in corporate worship and the singing of songs, uh, it's probably good to have a good balance, if not er uh, erring more on the side of songs that focus on the nature and the character and his activity more so than our own. Yeah, we talk so much about the experience of God, which for me of us, like myself, who aren't experience-oriented, you, you lose a lot of us if you yeah. live at that point. But we don't really talk too much about the knowledge of God, and any experience you have of God must be rooted in the knowledge of God, because if we're going to talk about just having an experience of God, well, hey, we're talking about Mormons next week on the show, and... You know, those Mormons, they claim they have an experience of God as well. And for you guys an experience, well, who are you to argue against them? Well, and categorically, you had said, you know, it, it kind of loses you. Yeah. You lose most men. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, characteristically speaking, men are just not as emotional. That's not how we connect with mm-hmm. things. We don't really, we don't just connect, ex- <coughs> excuse me. We don't connect exclusively on an emotional level. <coughs> Excuse me, I apologize. Yeah. And so when our church services are only emotionally driven, you're really ostracizing a lot of men. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, my feelings are whimsical. Feelings come and go. Feelings can be changed by whether you've had coffee or not. I mean, your outlook, your perspective on life can be affected simply by your diet. Things that come and go and change. And so we certainly don't want our feelings to be the foundation of our relationship with God. It needs to be grounded in that which we know is true. And so truth in terms of even your relationship with God, which is, you know, one of the catchphrases of our time, right? It's not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, relationships cannot only be emotional. That's foolish. That you're setting yourself up for a very unfulfilled relationship if it is based only on emotions which come and go and change according to weather. Yeah. Now, it must rest upon something more substantial. It must rest upon truth. Yeah, we've, uh, it's often been said that for marriages, for instance, one of the reasons men don't go to marriage counseling as much is they don't want to sit down and talk about their feelings all the time and such. And if our marriages, depending on our emotions, we be in even more chaos. In fact, that's probably one reason why there is so much trouble in our world today, because our marriages do depend on emotions. Yeah, that's the new definition of marriage, right? It is simply an emotional bond. Well, I'm glad that my marriage is not built on an emotional bond. Mm -hmm. My marriage is built on a a covenant. It is a a choosing of our wills. It is based on love, not the romantic side of love, the self-giving aspect of love. My marriage is built upon my commitment to seek the good of Terry. And so that is something in the category of something that is true, because I will do these things for Terry regardless of what I feel about her at the moment. I've committed to treat her in a way based on uh, some, you know, not based on my feelings is what I'm trying to say here. So you're, you're exactly right. Yeah, I can be thoroughly upset with Ari about something. Yeah, if I'm walking down the street and I see another attractive woman coming along, I'm looking away 
steer, or if someone inserts her, or even when I'm upset with her, I am going to tear into them, no matter what. Right. So, within the church and in general, yeah. uh, we need to put more of an emphasis on giving our people truth. Uh, and especially, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I work with Ratio Christi College Prep. Teenagers are starving for truth. Yep. Uh, there's been this misunderstanding in the church that they think teenagers don't want it. You give them anything too hard, you're going to push them away. No, they are desperately starving for truth. They are thirsting for it. And when you give them a little bit of them, you, a little bit of truth, you can see the satisfaction in their whole being after they've actually taken it in. And so that is something that we just have to be better at within the church. It's equipping our people with truth not just giving them an opportunity for an experience. Yeah, I spoke at New Orleans earlier this year at the Defend the Faith Conference. And one thing I said was, okay, guys, let's make a list here, because it was about the winning over our young people and such. So let's uh, make a list here. We're going to put two columns here. On the left side, we're going to put what the church is usually giving our young people today. So let's make a list here, okay? Pizza parties, laser tag, um, bowling, concerts. And you know, you can think about how the list would go. But on the other side, okay, let's go and let's picture this young person going to college. What are they going to be given? Well, you know, they're going to be some of the same things, but now let's add in some others. Sex, partying, drinking, drugs. Now, as you compare these two lists, which one do you think sounds the most attractive to young people today? <laughs> and it's no contest. But we still have this crazy idea. We go in, we entertain our young people, we give them pizza parties, we give them concerts, and there's just so much love Jesus that they'll be more than ready when they get to college. Not yeah. working. Well, I, I would say this, and this might sound strange coming from my mouth, but... Pizza parties, I think, are indispensable in youth history. Okay. But if that is all that it is, you are wasting your time. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is teenagers do need a healthy social environment. When you think about effective youth ministry in our day, one of the epidemics of, of modernity is broken relationships. Yeah. There are so many children that come from broken Homes And what that means is classic support systems have broken down. Yeah. At what used to exist, a healthy environment in the home that provides a healthy nurturing environment for children, by and large, many teenagers don't have that today. Yeah. So the substitution of a healthy support group is very important. Now, it can't just be a peer support group. It should be more adults from the church. But the social gatherings from with a, in a healthy environment of other believers is indispensable for youth ministry, but if you are not at the same time while you have them, equipping yeah. them with good knowledge, right understanding of God, if you're not giving them truth, you've done exactly what you've said. You have, have really not done anything. You've just set them up for failure and for uh, uh, just uh, uh, an, abandon, an abandon, abandoning, I couldn't get it out, of their faith once they go off to university. Now, I agree with you entirely. I'm not opposed to pizza parties, things like that, just Opposed to that being the only thing yep. right. that we're doing. Yep. And our, our message, we're, we're not really connecting with our young people at all. If you talk about the sexual sin being so abundant, I remember being in a church once 
they have the silver ring thing going on. Which, if someone doesn't know up there, it's pretty much everything of, we're going to wait until marriage. And I heard the pastor talking to the young people there, the associate pastor, and he was saying, now, I want you to know, if you do not wait until marriage, you are going to be giving in for very selfish reasons. Okay, I can understand that. I agree with that, in fact. And then he went on to say, think about if you get an STD. Think about if you get pregnant. Think about the shame you're going to feel. Think about what you might have to tell your future spouse someday on your wedding night. And I heard that, and I was thinking, wanted to raise my hands and say, excuse me, Pastor, um, those sound like selfish reasons to me, too. Because they're <laughs> all about me. And even more he kept going on and on, I was getting bored back there. And I, I tell people, I said, listen, if you are giving a sermon on the purity and goodness of sex, and you've got a guy who is college age out there in the audience, and he is getting bored. You are doing something wrong. Yeah. Well, and this is goes beyond just talks on sexual ethics. Mm -hmm. But if we in the church, especially in ministering to teenagers, if we only focus on why something is bad and yeah. why they should not do something, it affords them the opportunity to think about all the reasons those bad things won't come to them. Mm -hmm. Well, I will be more safe. I will do this. Or I know this person that had a good experience, and it yeah. turned out well for them. Rather, we it's perfectly fine to say why you shouldn't do something. Yeah. But more so, you should highlight why you should do something. Yeah. The goodness of a thing. The value mm -hmm. of it. Uh, why marriage in this way is good is more effective than simply saying why something is bad and what will come from it, giving them meaning. Because one of the things, I know we're going back to teenagers here, but I actually, I didn't mention this earlier, but I spent seven years teaching high school students, and the number one question I always got asked from teenagers was, when am I ever going to use this? Yeah. And that is the right question to ask. And that's one of the things we need to do for teenagers when we're teaching them biblical morality or an ethics that is consistent with the New Testament. We need to not just say why things are bad. We need to show them when they're going to use it, the good of the thing and what they are building in their life, as opposed to simply saying, don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. Uh, anyhow, I, a bit off topic here, but uh, that's a big, a big point for me. Yeah, you know, we talk about why we should do things in there was a time a few months ago that uh, Allie and I were both trying to couple, to, uh, sorry, to counsel a couple separately. I don't think it worked too well, unfortunately, which is something you have to learn. People aren't always going to do the right thing. But she talked to her wife, I talked to the husband. And wife was kind of thinking, I just don't feel like I'm in love anymore. I don't feel such and such. And Allie's response was pretty much said, So what? Who cares? You have a promise, and you are supposed to do what you're supposed to do anyway. And then when I talked to the husband, he'd want to talk about what the wife was doing. I was irritating him. I'd say, okay, you know what? We can talk about it a little bit, but you know what? I'm not talking to her. I'm talking to you. Let's talk about what you need to do. And I kept coming back to this one point. I said, dude, you made a covenant. You made a covenant. You made a covenant. You are to honor that covenant. A covenant is a lifelong binding agreement. And you honor cov the covenant. And you love your spouse. 
Not because of how you feel at the time, or not because of the good things they do for you, or anything like that, which, I mean, you should try to feel good, you should celebrate for good things, and you should do good things for your spouse, but you honor them also, because you made a covenant before God and men, and that does not change, and if you break that covenant, you have to stand before God one day and say, yeah, here's why I made the covenant, and you're often selfish reasons for me cases aren't going to cut. Now, I know there are sometimes that n divorce is sadly a necessity for some couples, but it is way too easy, and those have to be serious, serious grounds, like abuse or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk in the book, then about apologetic issues we need to know about God and religion and scripture, and we obviously can't touch on all of them, but pretty much just let's try and say that Christians just really don't have an informed enough worldview, and it, it's so tragic, because like I said earlier, most people could tell you anything about, say, their favorite sports team, or their favorite TV show, or even their spouse, and there's nothing wrong with knowing those things, but you try and say God is a centerpiece of your universe, and more, most important aspect of your universe, and you hardly know a thing about him. Yeah. Yeah, the I don't know how accurate the the studies are detailing the percentage of Christians that actually have a biblical worldview or not. Mm -hmm. But even affording a bit of uh, leniency, the numbers are ridiculous. I think you know Barna has a study that uh, nineteen you know nineteen percent of Christian adults would classify as to having a biblical worldview, and the way De Barnum defined a biblical worldview, it wouldn't have been too hard to pass that test, so to speak. Yeah. It's only kind of eight fundamental things of mere Christianity. Yeah, so we, we are in an age of biblical illiteracy, uninformed Christians. Nobody's living uh, the life of the examined mind, and so we do need to be more knowledgeable about why we believe what we believe. And so in those in that section of the book, uh, it's certainly not the book you would read to be fully equipped to answer questions about the existence of God, the reliability of Scripture, uh, things of that nature. But in that section of the book, I seek to kind of show the believer how these issues are going to pop up and why you need to be ready for them, uh, just kind of an introductory way of how you can handle them. But again, the person out there that's listening and saying, I don't like to learn, I don't like to read, uh, they just need to hear that this is a way that you love your neighbor. Right. You prepare yourself to answer life's most important questions. Yeah. And we're all interested, Michael has been saying that the book isn't the one you go to for these kinds of answers and such, which I agree with. But if you do get a book, he does have a help for a section in the back where he goes through each of these topics and says, hey, here are some good resources I recommend on this. So you're not going to be totally in the dark if you pick it up and just read the section on God. And where, geez, I don't even know now for sure if God exists, but he's got something in the back to help you with that. That's right, no doubt. And it's certainly not an exhaustive list. There are many good books that aren't on there. Uh, there's just some of the books that are, I have read and have helped me. And, and, of course, the book, you know, it's a new book, but I was finished writing with it, you know, over a year ago. So already it's probably even a bit outdated in terms of the uh, 
the resources at the back. There are some more good books that are out now that weren't even out when the book was being written. You know, when you talk about having a biblical worldview, also I think part of the problem that many of us would have is that uh, we're major and minors, and minor and major. It's like there'll be people out there who know everything they can to defend, say, young earth creationism or dispensationalism, but they won't have a clue on the doctrine of a trinity at all. Yeah, that's a hard one to keep uh, in balance, especially in the apologetics community, because it tends to be people that get excited about uh, just diving in fully into one issue, and, and you, you get a bit of kind of the, the problem get blinders on when you get so focused on one thing, you forget other things, and you lack the ability to see how what you're studying fits into the, the larger whole, and I and that, that's fine. I mean, we need those people, but what those people need is the ability to uh, have a spirit of humility and and brotherhood and being able to talk about differences and, and work in a larger group so that the body has a full image and understanding of the nature of God and, and, and of his creation. I've uh, always had sort of, I'm more than willing to discuss secondary doctrines with people, but as soon as it becomes an issue where we start questioning one another's Christian faith over it, I'm stepping back because I'm not interested in that. I mean, there are essentials for Christianity, of course, but the non-essentials are not that. Yeah, it becomes a big distraction on so many levels, and I agree with you too. Mm-hmm. Uh, while there are real problems in the world. Uh, the world sees us quibbling over some minor issue, issue in our belief system. Uh, it is a bad image for Christianity, and it further solidifies in their mind that we are irrelevant. That our belief does, our beliefs, our faith, it doesn't matter for anybody else because all we do is get lost in arguments over silly little things. You know, as we are getting into the final minutes of our show, I remember how you talk about how. Uh, men aren't usually emotional and such, so let's talk about how we're going to further apply this, especially about being relational. Because I can tell you, for instance, as an Aspie, that a lot of times speaking isn't always my main thing. If you want me to be speaking on a project topic, I'll, speak, I'll stand before a crowd, I'll do that, no problem whatsoever. But when it comes to just making my daily requests known and such, I often, more often, just use gestures, pointing, things like that to get the message across. Because you know the, the whole relational side, it's extremely difficult. And I'm sure there are several neurotypicals out there who say, "Yeah, the whole relational side is extremely diff- difficult for me too." I mean, what do you say to those of us out there that do struggle with that? Yeah, no, that that's great. Uh, what I say to you is mm-hmm. uh, that you were part of the body of Christ mm-hmm. and that we together work together to serve God and to love others. And so that's the great comfort that we have, is that we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses, we all have unique and specific ways we contribute to a, a common good. And so that that's what we say. We recognize our limitations. Now, that doesn't mean that the person that is um, not as good in social settings 
that obviously doesn't mean that, okay, well, that's fine. I never have to speak to anybody, and I don't have to speak to them respectfully. And obviously, that's not what we're saying here. But we do understand that there are people that are more gifted and more adept at certain situations mm -hmm. than we are. And so together, we work we work well and function as the body of Christ. I was at my church, and that last moving but the Sunday before, I think it was, and we have a welcome table out front, and I was nearby getting myself some hot chocolate because, unfortunately, we stopped serving tea, which is the nectar of the gods, as we all know. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you talk about coffee earlier. I, I still think what Tim McGrew said. Coffee was created by the devil to lead us away from tea. <laughs> but, but I see this family, well, it looks like a family coming up, and they're looking, and there was no one there. I mean, well, you know, I hate doing this, but I go up there, and I went, I'm just got behind the counter there and said, okay, and welcome to At The Point, our church. Uh, how did you hear about us? Here was some information. And later I saw talking to the associate pastor when I went up, or pastor intern when I went up to uh, ask him about something, and they somebody said, oh, this guy was very, very helpful to us earlier. And, you know, I was serious. Like, yeah, I didn't really care for doing that. It, it wasn't my cup of tea. It was very uncomfortable, but it was a thing that had to be done at the time. Yeah, no, and that, that's and that's just the attitude that that we all need to have is mm -hmm. is one we work well together because we all have strengths and yeah. weaknesses that complement each other, but that we all also need to serve in areas and do things that aren't that we aren't strong in. Exactly what you had said, because there are a lot of people to varying degrees that don't like social. Uh, interaction. I'm actually one of them. I, mean, yeah. I have a book called Relational Apologetics, but I'm not the most social person. You know, I'm I'm not an extrovert. I've learned oh, how yeah. to speak pretty well. Uh, I've, I've disciplined myself, and and I can handle myself in social situations. But that's uh, not my cup of tea there. So I, I just think that this is a healthy conversation we're having here, where one we just yeah. recognize that we all have strengths and weaknesses and we work together as the body of Christ but that is not an excuse for us to not do things that we're not good at. I, I think that's a great comfort for a lot of people to hear because I think they hear us and they think we're the kind of people who would just go up to random strangers and say, hey, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus here. Yes. No, no, that is not who we are. In fact, if you did that just randomly, that kind of approach could be more annoying and driving people away than anything else. Well, and it's funny because it's, you know, I, you can speak categorically and know it's not true all the time. And just by the way, you know, I said men are typically not as emotional. Yeah. That's not to say that if you are a man and you are emotional, that that yeah. is something wrong with you, that you're unmanly. No, it's right. just speaking in general generalizations and men that are very emotional, that's a very good thing. It's a healthy thing. I don't mean to, to say otherwise. Um, but... Uh, and I actually, in making that point, I've, I've lost where uh, what I was addressing. What what point was I addressing? I was talking about how going up to just random strangers and saying, "Hey, let me tell you something about Jesus," and that can, in fact, drive more people away than it can lead. Right, right. Spirit. What's funny is, generally speaking, people that are very relational, very extroverted, they typically aren't the ones that love to read and pour over ideas. Right. Those that love to read and pour over ideas typically aren't the ones that like engaging other people, mm -hmm. which just seems that so that's kind of backwards. The people that have a lot of good information are the ones that don't like to give it to other people. 
the people that like to talk to people often don't have as much information. Of course, that's not true across the board. But what that just shows us is that as the body of Christ, we have to work in harmony, supporting each other and valuing our diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as an introvert myself, I can say, many times I just want to get down, sit down with my book and read, and that's the time that I need to be recharged in Inevitably, in many times, that's the time someone just messages me on Facebook or such, because I've always got some way in my people who just say, hey, I'd like to ask you a question about this. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's what I have to do, but that reading time, it's so crucial, because you know, many times, I, I still don't want to do it. But when I sit down and start reading something, I think, why am I wanting to do other things? Because this is learning, and this is fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... What what advice would you give then to the people who are saying, hey, I, I do have to learn how to step outside my comfort zone, especially in, again, our feeling-oriented culture where we say, if I don't feel comfortable with it, if I don't feel safe, I'm not doing it. Yeah, well, it just you just start. One of the things that I've realized is that the things, my, my fears are very rarely realized. Mm-hmm. which means that, you know, we all get anxious about things. We fear outcomes. But more often than not, when I actually do the thing that I fear doing, yeah. I find out that I should not have feared it in the first place. Yeah. I mean, very rarely are my hopes realized, and the things that I anticipate with excitement, very rarely are they realized to the degree that I was expecting them to be. The same goes as with my fears. And so to the person listening, that that is a little uncomfortable about getting out and doing some of the things that we've talked about what you're fearing about it probably isn't going to come true or at least it's not going to come true in the way that you imagine Uh, as it relates to evangelism and defending my faith what I have found is the hardest part is opening my mouth with intention to engage somebody in a loving manner once I do that the rest is downhill the hardest part is really just starting a conversation And so for those of you that are out there that are wanting to do this but a little bit anxious and worried about doing it, just do it. That's the hardest part, opening your mouth, and then you will see that what you feared is most likely not going to come true. I can't but think about what Mark Twain said once when he said, there are many things I have feared in my life. Some of them have actually already happened. (laughs) Right. So uh, you you might reap the fear that you are uh, anticipating, and that is true, uh, but more often than not, it doesn't happen that way. In fact, too often, our fears can often kind of become self-fulfilling prophecies if we treat them a certain way. And maybe we say, well, yeah, I was right, because I was afraid. Well, maybe your fear helped make what you were afraid of a reality. Yep, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well... Michael, we're uh, getting near the time, and there's really not enough time to jump to another topic. But let's uh, get a little bit more information about you, even though you gave us a whole lot at the start. (laughs) If people want to find out more about you or who you are and such, do you have a website, a blog, anything they can go to get in touch with you? Yep. Yeah, Mm michaelcsherrard.com. That's my website. Uh, It is also my blog. Uh, all of my booking information is there. Uh, spring and summer is, is getting filled up. So if anybody uh, is interested in booking me, 
now now is the time to do it. The the calendar is getting quite filled up. But yep, that's the place to get in touch with me. My book is on Amazon. It's uh, in many other bookstores. In fact, I had a good friend in Oxford send me a picture because he saw the book on uh, Blackwell's bookshelf. You know, Oxford's library, and I got a I got a nice kick out of that here. So uh, made me. Made me a little proud. I'm not going to lie about that. So, but anyhow, well, you're yeah. going to leave a chapter on humility again. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Nick. Very good. Yeah. So, um, the yeah, book relational projects and Michael Schwab S H E R R A R D. It yep. is available on Amazon right now. On Kindle, it's 13.55, and on paperback, it's 14.26. There are some cheaper prices that are used right now, but it is available. Alright, Vale, so go ahead and make use of it. Relational projects, defending the Christian faith with holiness, respect, and truth. Now, Michael, is there any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? No, I just want to encourage those of you that have been adopted by the Lord Jesus Christ and have found peace in the forgiveness of your sins to really consider what matters and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. To go forth in this world and boldly proclaim the truth that you have found, doing it in a loving and gracious manner, and may many be blessed by your faithfulness to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, I'd like to thank you for coming on today, and I hope that we'll see you back here again sometime. Nick, anytime, my brother. I, had a, I enjoyed it. Uh, take care. Send along my regards to your wife, and until uh, the next time, perhaps we can meet uh, in person. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone that next time, in fact, on our show, we have Rob Bowman coming back, and we're going to be talking about Mormonism and the Seer Stone Discovery. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>